everyone, and welcome to the January 2nd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarin, Manukian, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal opened the door for workers' compensation civil litigation based upon the Insurance Fraud Prevention Act. Here's what happened in the case of Mahmoud Alziat on behalf of the people of the state of California versus Gerald Ebb. Mahmoud Alziat filed a ketom action against his employer, Sunline Transit Agency, and his supervisor, Gerald Ebb, alleging they violated the Insurance Frauds Prevention Act. Sunline is a public entity that provides regional transportation services and oversight of other transportation entities, such as taxi companies. Alziat was employed by Sunshine as a stops and zones technician, and in that capacity he maintained bus stop infrastructure, and Mr. Hebb was his supervisor. On the day of the injury, Alziat was working on a bus stop. The only available bags of concrete mix weighed 90 pounds. Alziat asked Mr. Hebb for permission to either break down a 90-pound bag into lighter ones or to have another employee help him. But Hebb refused his request, and the two argued for about two minutes. Hebb ultimately ordered Mr. Alziat to lift the 90-pound bag himself without first breaking it down. Alziat complied and immediately upon lifting the bag felt intense pain in his lumbar spine and partially collapsed and dropped the bag and its contents spilled out. When Mr. Hebb asked Alziat why he had dropped the bag, Alziat complained that he had injured his back when lifting the bag. However, in the accident report, Alziat alleged Hebb lied and wrote he did not witness Alziat's injury and had repeated those false statements in a deposition taken during the investigation into Mr. Alziad's claim for compensation. Heb's false statements resulted in Alziad's claim being initially denied, but Alziad filed a lawsuit alleging Heb's false statements constituted violations of the Insurance Frauds Prevention Act, also known as the IFPA. Mr. Alziat sought a civil penalty against Mr. Hebb of three times the amount of his workers' comp claim, attorney fees, and costs. The employer filed motions for judgment on the pleadings contending this lawsuit was based on allegedly false and fraudulent statements Hebb made in connection with his workers' compensation proceeding and is therefore barred by the litigation privilege and that Mr. Alziat's claims is barred by the workers' compensation exclusivity rule. The Superior Court concluded the workers' comp exclusivity rule was inapplicable, but ruled that the litigation privilege barred Alziat's claim. Therefore, the court granted the motions without leave to amend and entered judgment dismissing the lawsuit and Alziat appealed. The Court of Appeal agreed with Mr. Alziat that his lawsuit is not barred by the litigation privilege nor by the workers' compensation exclusive remedy rule in the published case. The Insurance Frauds Prevention Act was in large measure designed to prevent workers' compensation insurance fraud and provides for civil liability for various forms of workers' compensation insurance fraud. 
The litigation privilege provides that a publication or broadcast made as part of a judicial, privilege, uh, judicial proceeding is privileged. The litigation privilege is broad, but it has limits. Like any statute, the privilege is subject to the rule of statutory construction that a particular provision prevails over a general one. The California Supreme Court opened the door for consumers to sue makers of brand name pharmaceutical products over injuries blamed on generic versions of the drugs manufactured by other companies. The California Supreme Court's ruling in the case of TH versus Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation broke with decisions nationally to the contrary and created exposure for brand name drug makers who could be sued in the state for failing to warn users about the risk of cheaper, generic versions of their drugs. The decision was the only one currently by a state's top court to favor consumers of generic drugs who legally cannot sue generic drug makers for not warning about their product's risks. Novartis, whose appeal had the support of industry groups, including the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, said it disagrees with the court's decision to potentially hold it responsible for an injury caused by a different company's product. The decision came in a lawsuit centered on two twin children who were diagnosed with developmental delays and autism after their mother, while pregnant, took a generic version of Brethine to suppress premature labor. Under a 2011 ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court, generic drug companies cannot be sued for failing to provide adequate label warnings about potential side effects because federal law requires them to use the brand name versions of the labels. Novartis argued its duty to warn consumers did not cover those taking generics and that a contrary ruling would effectively make it the market's insurer. But the California Supreme Court disagreed. The court concluded that brand name manufacturers are the only entities with the ability to strengthen a warning label. So a duty of care on behalf of all those who consume the brand name drug or its bioequivalent ensures that the brand name manufacturer has sufficient incentive to prevent a known or reasonably knowable harm. Michelle Janet Leas was a food services worker with the Corona Norco Unified School District. She claimed she sustained an injury to the lower right side of her back in 2013 when she picked up a box of frozen burritos. She received total workers' compensation benefits of over $4,400 and $14,000 was also paid out for her medical expenses. But an insurance investigator recorded three sub-rows of videos of her and in those videos, she spent an extended amount of time in a car driving. She went to a pumpkin patch event. She bent down and tied her shoes. She walked without a limp. She carried a package to her car and she sat in a casino gambling. Her treating physician changed his opinion after viewing the videos and said she was milking the claim. He issued a supplemental orthopedic report in which he wrote, that she was not disabled and should return to work. 
Lee has pled guilty to fraudulently making a material statement and representation for the purpose of obtaining composition. And prosecutors filed a request for restitution in an aggregate amount of over $45,000. The court granted the defendant three years of summary probation and imposed victim restitution in the amount of over $35,000. The court denied restitution only for photocopying, bill review, and defense fees. On appeal, Janet Leas contended that the court abused its discretion in awarding that amount of restitution. But the Court of Appeal affirmed the restitution order in the unpublished case of People v. Leas. Generally speaking, restitution awards are vested in the trial court's discretion and will be disturbed on appeal only when the appellant has shown an abuse of discretion. Even though the trial court has broad discretion in making a restitution award, that discretion is not unlimited. While it is not required to make an order in keeping with the exact amount of the loss, the trial court must use a rational method that could reasonably be said to make the victim whole and may not make an order which is arbitrary or capricious. When there is a factual and rational basis for the amount of restitution ordered by the trial court, no abuse of discretion will be found by the reviewing court. Here, it was found that the court acted well within its discretion by implicitly determining that defendant had never suffered an injury. Thus, its award of all wages and medical expenses incurred as a result of defendant's fake injury is supported by the record. This is regardless of the date reflected in the criminal complaint and in the defendant's plea. And now our crime report. Physicians who practiced at the Campbell Medical Group, Dr. Valsini Ganesh, a family practitioner, and Dr. Gregory Belcher, an orthopedic surgeon, were convicted of health care fraud by a federal jury after an eight-week jury trial. The jury found 47-year-old Ganesh of Saratoga guilty of five counts of health care fraud and five counts of making false statements related to claims fraudulently submitted to health care benefit programs. 56-year-old Dr. Belcher, also of Saratoga, was found guilty of one count of making a false statement related to a health care benefit program. Both defendants were acquitted of conspiracy and money laundering counts, and Belcher was also acquitted of four other health care fraud counts and one other count of making a false statement related to a health care benefit program. The evidence at trial showed that Ganesh submitted false and fraudulent claims to several health care benefit programs for services that she knew were not properly payable by including claims for days when the patient had not been seen by the provider and claims that the patients had been seen by another physician provider who was no longer affiliated with her practice. Evidence at trial further demonstrated that Dr. Belcher had on at least one occasion submitted a false claim in connection with a billing matter related to his physical therapy practice. The federal judge scheduled the defendant's sentencing hearing for April 2018. This prosecution is a result of a two-year investigation by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. 
And in regulatory news, the WCIRB has completed its September 2017 review and analysis of experience information submitted by insurers. This report is based on data reported to the WCIRB by insurers who wrote almost 100% of the statewide market. Overall, 2017 is expected to be a comparatively good year for California workers' compensation insurance carriers. First, the bad news. Written premium will decrease slightly. California written premium for 2016 was approximately $18.1 billion, which was three years above the written premium reported for 2015. But written premium for the first nine months of 2017 was $13.5 billion, which is 4% below the written premium reported for the first nine months of 2016. The approved January 1, 2018 advisory pure premium rates are on average approximately 30% below the 2015 advisory pure premium rates. The reduction in overall premium dollars for the year is not unexpected in light of the success of recent system reform efforts. The good news is that despite the reduction in total premium dollars, the underwriting profits have dramatically improved as a result of claim cost containment. The combined ratio is a measure of profitability used by an insurance company to indicate how well it is performing in its daily operations. The ratio is typically expressed as a percentage. A ratio below 100% indicates that the company is making underwriting profit while a ratio above 100% means that it is paying out more money in claims than it is receiving from premiums. The WCIRB projects an ultimate accident year combined loss and expense ratio of 90% for 2016. This projection is generally consistent with the ratios for the prior two accident years, which represent the lowest combined ratios since the 2004 through 2006 period. It is important to remember that the combined loss and expense ratio was projected at 131% in the year 2000, a projection, projection now that is under 100% is a remarkable improvement in underwriting profit results. The WCIRB projects indemnity claim frequency for accident year 2016 to be approximately 1% below the frequency for 2015, but 10% above the frequency for 2009. The frequency increases experienced in 2010 through 2014 are largely attributed to increases in cumulative injury claims, late reported indemnity claims, claims involving injuries to multiple body parts, and claims from the Los Angeles Basin area. 2015 and 2016 represent the first consecutive years of projected indemnity claim frequency decline since before the Great Recession. The projected indemnity claim frequency for the first nine months of 2017 is approximately 1% higher than that for 2016. The WCIRB projects the average cost or severity of a 2016 indemnity claim to be about $78,000, which is 2% higher than the projected severity for 2015. Total claim severity growth over the last several years has been relatively modest as increases in average indemnity 
and allocated costs have been in part offset by declines in average medical costs through 2016. A commissioner with the National Certification Commission for Addiction Professionals said that California is the wild, wild west right now, and the state is home for about 1,800 licensed recovery centers and an unknown number of unlicensed sober living homes and testing labs. And many believe California needs to get better at rehab regulation. Some say there are a lot of places committing crimes that authorities are trying to enforce, but they cannot keep up with the pace. The chief of the California Department of Healthcare Services Substance Use Disorder Compliance Division, which licenses rehab treatment centers, said her agency can only do what the state legislature allows. The health department's spokesperson said the state codes list specific causes for denying a treatment center license. The reasons include prior revocation of a license and failure to comply with fire codes. But other than that, applicants from would-be operators and counselors generally are not screened by the state of California. Drug counselors in California are certified by industry-related agencies to work in recovery programs. And once certified, they're governed by a code of conduct written by the certifying agency that could make them subject to discipline for such things as sexual misconduct or drug abuse. But officials and critics say neither the third-party certification organizations nor the State Health Services Agency are routinely notified by law enforcement or state officials when treatment center operators or their workers are convicted of crimes or disciplined for license violations. This is not a new problem, and California legislators have fought about it for years. Still, they've made little progress in beefing up licensing standards and rehab monitoring. That's partly because of industry lobbying and because of fears that tighter rules will raise treatment costs or limit the number of rehab beds just when the nation's opioid crisis is cranking up demand. Last year, State Senator Pat Bates introduced a bill to reform the system, but it stalled in committee. Today, she describes the state's oversight of rehab operators, sober living homes, and counselors as troubling. Senator Bates said there is significant resistance to looking at rehab operators' backgrounds. There's a culture about giving these people a second chance. Still, she insists that background checks and tougher licensing requirements for counselors, employees, and rehab operators are vital. And in medical news, in the latest attempt at price gouging in the world's largest healthcare market, a U.S. drug maker is charging almost $300 for a bottle of prescription vitamins that can be bought online for less than $5. In the latest example of eye-watering price gouging, Avondale Pharmaceuticals, a mysterious company registered in Alabama, raised the price of Niacor from $32 to $295. Niacor is a prescription version of niacin, a type of vitamin B3 that is frequently used to treat high blood cholesterol. A wide range of generic versions of the vitamin are available, 
Walmart sells a jar of 100 tablets for $14.99, while other brands are available online for even less. Yet, some doctors still prefer to use the version approved by the Food and Drug Administration to treat high cholesterol. And many doctors are unaware of the price of Niacor, for which 19,000 prescriptions were written last year, has so drastically increased. Avondale is a secretive Alabama-based company, and they put the price of Niacor up shortly after acquiring the rights to the drug in a so-called buy-and-raise deal, a strategy made famous by Martin Screlly, the disgraced biotech entrepreneur. Screlly became the so-called most hated man in the U.S. after he bought the rights to a drug used to treat people with AIDS and increased the price by almost 5,000%. Avondale Pharmaceuticals bought the rights to Niacor from Upshur Smith, a division of Japan's Sawai Pharmaceutical, earlier last year. The company also bought the rights to a drug used to treat respiratory ailments known as SSKI and multiplied the price 25 times, raising the cost of a 30 milliliter bottle from $11.48 to $295. Avondale Pharmaceuticals does not have a website and lists its address as a business park in Mountain View, a suburb on, in Birmingham, Alabama. The suite said to be the company's office was empty. People working in neighboring offices said the suite had been vacant for some time and that they were not aware of any pharmaceutical companies in the office park. The number of U.S. deaths at work from unintentional drug and alcohol overdoses jumped more than 30% in 2016. The Bureau of Labor Statistics National Census of Fatal Occupational Injuries said that 217 workers died on the job last year as a result of an unintentional overdose from the non-medical use of drugs or alcohol. This was up from 165 in 2015. The number of accidental overdose deaths at work has nearly tripled since the BLS began compiling the data in 2011. The OSHA Deputy Assistant Secretary said the Department of Labor will respond by working with public and private stakeholders to help eradicate the opioid crisis as a deadly and growing workplace issue. Earlier this year, OSHA limited its reporting of fatalities in the U.S. as part of a series of moves by the agency cutting back on the amount of information about workplace accidents made available to the public. Other causes of workplace deaths still dominated in 2016, a year during which the economy added 2.24 million new jobs. Total fatal work injuries rose 7% to 5,190 in 2016, according to the report. Deaths due to workplace violence increased 23% last year from the year before, making that the second most common cause of death on the job in 2016, after transportation incidents. The number of workplace suicides rose 27% in 2016 from the year before to 291. This was the highest number since the census began recording the number of suicides at work in 1992. 
According to a 2013 study by the CDC, the burden of prescription opioid abuse from crime, lost work productivity through absenteeism, or poor job performance and healthcare costs is estimated at $78.5 billion a year. With the challenging landscape of healthcare, outpatient spine surgery is being more commonly performed to reduce cost and improve efficiency. Anterior cervical discectomy and fusion is one of the most common spine surgeries performed and demand is expected to increase with an aging population. But a new study published in the Spine Journal claims that patients who get the spinal surgery at outpatient centers may be more likely to have serious complications or require repeat operations than their counterparts who get these procedures in a hospital. The researchers focused on the operation known as anterior cervical discectomy infusion, which involves removing a damaged disc in the neck to reduce pressure on the spinal cord or nerve that can cause pain, numbness, and weakness. Most of these surgeries are done in hospitals with one or two nights stay, but a growing number of people are going instead to outpatient centers that may have lower costs in part because they do not keep patients overnight. In both the inpatient and outpatient study groups overall, there were few complications. One year after surgery, 5.5% of the people who had outpatient surgery needed repeat operations, as did 4.1% in the inpatient group. After accounting for individual patient characteristics like age, gender, and other health problems, the researchers found that people who had the outpatient surgeries were 79% more likely to require repeat operations within one year than patients who had operations in a hospital. Outpatients were also 25% more likely to experience postoperative kidney failure. But the study was not a controlled experiment designed to prove whether or how the location of surgery might influence the outcomes. Still, the findings add to the evidence that these operations can be done safely, but should be considered only after other treatments such as physical therapy, pain medication, or steroid injections fail. Though employers and workers' compensation insurers have been utilizing telemedicine for quite some time, the Insurance Journal reports that there has been recent uptick in interest surrounding Virtual Physical Therapy, also known as Tele-Rehab. Tele-Rehab provides virtual access to physical therapy and is intended to be a replacement for an in-person visit to an outpatient facility. According to a recent white paper released by MedRisk, while not all treatment is translatable to Tele-Rehab, online exercise demos, virtual workout supervision, and secure communication tools make it possible to supplement in-clinic physical therapy with valuable remote services. This includes patient follow-ups, home treatment plans, questions and answers, and consultations with specialists. Telerehab can include the whole spectrum of what is called musculoskeletal care management. Remote patient monitoring can be achieved by using health and fitness trackers or through patient self-reporting. Highly adaptable, telerehab can begin 
with online video conferencing and move toward live, face-to-face -face interaction. While there's been traction in both the group healthcare and Medicare markets, there's been a slow adoption rate by the workers' comp industry, despite the fact that the concept has been around for quite a while. And with that story that is all of our news and events for this week, please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd Scarin, Manukian, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.